Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, so we are currently as a church reading through the book of Isaiah, and we're learning and we're growing. Last week was Isaiah 24 through 27. And what we did was we looked at how the prophet was giving us a snapshot of what was coming upon the earth. It hasn't taken place yet. The magnitude of what he was talking about helps us understand that what he was saying has not been fulfilled at any point in history the scale at which the entire world will be affected by what God is doing that is yet to take place. We look at how that is, is also spoken about by Jesus in the book of Matthew uh, in the New Testament and how Paul talks about it in the book of Thessalonians. There's this idea that sometime in the future there is coming a tribulation on the earth that is, um, that is going to be the greatest tribulation that mankind has ever experienced and, and not a single human being is gonna be untouched by this. Everybody will be affected by what God is doing in the sifting and the turning up of the soil of the earth. And then the Lord is going to return. He's going to resurrect his people. He's going to establish his kingdom. There's going to be a great celebration for the people of God, but there's also going to be an eternal judgment for those on earth who have said, I don't know what I think about this Jesus thing. I think I'd rather just keep on doing my own thing. I don't believe that there's a God. Or I believe that there's a God and my view of him doesn't allow me to believe that he would punish people who uh, reject him or spread wickedness out on the, out on the earth. Um, I'm not interested in what the Ten Commandments tell me about uh, how mankind has uh, deviated or wandered and, and I kind of set my own rules in life and as long as you're nice to me and I'm nice to you, that's kind of the only thing that matters completely ignoring the fact that God over thousands of years has given us exactly what he thinks about this world and the choices that we've made. And that all leading to a place where in life, as a person will say, I don't want the sacrifice that Jesus made in order to cover my sins. I'd rather try and stand before a holy God and account for my deficit and my sin on my own. The debt is too great and you will face the punishment because you cannot live a righteous life and live up to the standard that God sets. Only one man has ever done that, and his name is Jesus. And if you put your faith in him passing the test for you and being your righteousness, then when you stand before holy God and you're accused of all the wickedness that you've done in your life and you plead Christ as your righteousness, you will inherit eternal life. There is no other way. Okay? That is what Isaiah is trying to tell us. There is coming a judgment on the earth for people who say, I don't want you, God. I want me. I don't want you and your ways. I want me and my ways. Isaiah said for 24 through 27, there's a judgment coming to that. So that was last week. His eyes were fixed on the future. And this week, as we go on to 28 through 29, Isaiah fixes his eyes back on the people of God. And this is the, the rhythm of the book of Isaiah. And this is one of the reasons why it's so difficult to understand the book, because it's hard to decipher where he's talking about and what period of time. And there are some clues. 
that help us understand, okay, now he's talking about historic stuff, and now he's talking about things in the future. A lot of it leans itself towards the magnitude. Have we seen this stuff take place? No, yet. So this is probably something that's coming in the future, and we can compare these with other verses in Revelation and Matthew, and that's how we understand where he's talking about. But he's starting to address historical things that are happening uh, as we go into 28, and so that's how we know that we're shifting tone. So Isaiah, I want you to imagine, he's, he's over the last few chapters, he's been looking up and he's seeing you know, beyond what Israel's doing, beyond what the church is doing, this is what God is doing, and no one can stop it. it he's coming back to the earth, and he's going to rain tribulation on the earth, and there's going to be punishment for the wicked and for the kingdom of darkness. He's going to punish demonic activity and demons and Satan, and he's going to punish wickedness in the hearts of man. This is coming. You can't stop it. But then Isaiah looks back down as we get into 28 and 29, and he starts looking at the people of God, and he looks at the condition, and this is the rhythm of Isaiah. It's, this is what, we're where we are, and this is where God is headed. And there is a great Grand Canyon in between. And so how is God going to breach that canyon? How is he going to get his people from where they are to where they need to be? And as we start going through Isaiah, we start scratching the surface at understanding that he saw Jesus. And this is a misconception. The idea that as you read through the Bible, God's original plan messed up. And God's over here thinking, all right, we need a new plan. We need a new plan. We need a new plan. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? All right, here's, I got one. Let's send Jesus. That was not a, look, he was not a backup plan. He has always only been the the only plan that's ever existed. God didn't go back to the drawing board and say, all right, first plan didn't work, let's try something else. No, it has always ever been Jesus. Everything has been pointing to one moment in history, and that is the murder of the Son of God and then his resurrection three days later. And what that means to the magnitude of everything. So we may be in Isaiah 700 years before that event took place, but Isaiah is still seeing what God is going to do in his people and how it plays itself out in the time period we are living in today. Okay? So let's just put that misconception to bed. This is not a backup plan. It's all the same plan. And all throughout history, we see the prophets seeing glimpses of this plan. So where we are today in Isaiah 28 through 29, the time period has moved forward past the oracles. We're probably after 722. Most commentators say that where we're studying today took place somewhere between 722 and 701 BC. Uh, The reason why we say 722 is because that was the year that Assyria finally came into the northern kingdom in Israel and wiped them out. The main city in the northern kingdom was the city called Samaria. It was set up by King Omri as one of the northern kingdoms up in Israel, um, one of the northern cities up in the northern kingdom in Israel. Assyria has been knocking on the door. They've been coming for them. And finally, in 722, they besiege the city. They destroy Samaria. And Israel, the northern kingdom, is gone. But not just the northern kingdom. If we're looking at this period, you guys remember the maps I've been showing with all the pretty colors of all the different regions. All those regions are gone. Assyria has decimated everybody. Moab, gone. Edomites, gone. Arabs, gone. Tyre, Sidon, gone. Samaria, gone. Israel, gone. The only nations left at the time period we're reading today is Judah, Philistine, Philistia, and Egypt. That's it. Babylon is still up in the north. They're trying to 
form together alliances and they'll come in and talk to Israel about Judah, about these alliances in the future. But at the time period we're reading today, everybody's gone and Assyria, who originally aligned with Judah to take out Syria and Israel, has now turned on Judah and they're coming for Judah. Assyria wants total domination and they were not the kind of people you played around with. They were horrible enemies. They were a nation that just psychological warfare, like they invented it. And so to hear that they're coming, the entire nation of Judah is in fear. They're afraid. Because at any moment, you can look up on the hill and see the armies start to roll over the top of the hill. That's the time period we're in, and that's the feeling of today. Assyria's conquered everything. And Judah doesn't know what to do because Assyria's coming for them. So what does Judah do? Judah starts trying to forge an alliance with Egypt. Now, when I talked two weeks ago about them starting to form an alliance with Babylon, that hasn't happened yet. That's 20 years from now. Where we're sitting today in the Scripture, Isaiah 20, 29, 28 and 29, Judah is thinking about forming an alliance with Egypt. And this idea, the even concept that Judah would start forming an alliance with Egypt after Isaiah walked through all the oracles and already told them what was going to happen, the fact that Judah starts thinking about, we can go maybe, we can align with Egypt and then they'll save us from Assyria. This goes against the fiber of Isaiah's message. Isaiah knows that if Judah turns from Yahweh, they will be destroyed. Now the question is, how does Isaiah know this? Well, he knows this because he's a prophet and God told him this, but he also knows this because God told the people this 300 years before this moment we're going to read about just a minute in Isaiah 28 and 29. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to go to 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 6 through 9. This is the preamble for today. I'm just getting warmed up. Isaiah, or 1 Kings 9, 6 through 9. This event we're about to read about is right after Solomon, David's son, builds a massive temple for the Lord. Up until this point, the Lord has lived in a tabernacle, a little tent that was moved from place to place to place. But now he's living in a temple, a massive, beautiful structure overlaid with gold. It was huge. And Solomon dedicates the temple and the Lord appears to Solomon and tells him, starting in verse 6, if you turn aside from me, you or your children, and you do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but you go and serve other gods and worship them. I'm going to cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I've constructed for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. Israel will become a bumper sticker on what not to do. This massive temple that you just finished building, I'm going to destroy it. I'll take care of it. If you turn from me, I will bring this structure to the ground, and I will make people forget. Verse 8, this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished, and they'll hiss, and they will say, why has the Lord done this to the land and to this house? And they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who was brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. This was spoken 
at 1000 BC when the temple was built and consecrated. Isaiah 28 and 29 was written around 700 BC. So when Isaiah 28 and 29, which we're about to read today, was written, the temple that Solomon had built was still standing in Jerusalem as the main city in Judah. And so the king, Hezekiah at the time, if he knows anything about Jewish history and his great, 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 great grandfather's command from the Lord, every time he walks out of his castle and looks at that temple, it is a physical reminder of what God said he would do if the hearts of the people turned from him. And that is, like I could preach an entire message series on that, but I'm just gonna put a little footnote in that. The people of faith have a very long history of using tangible things to tie our understanding of what God has said to what he has done. And I feel like it's important for us to understand that principle and borrow that principle in our homes and in our lives. You should really start considering things like hiding scripture verses in your home, writing them on the mirror in your bathroom, Put them on your lock screen of your phone. Hide them on your dashboard of your car. Because we as a people have a long history of forgetting the things that God has said and needing constant reminders of the things that he has promised. And so you are not exempt from this. All of us are guilty of forgetting. And the only way that we can fix that is to set up little reminders, just like the temple, of, God, of what God said he would do in our lives. Your brain is not that good. You can't remember as many things as you think you can. So do yourself a favor and regularly remind your soul, preach to yourself what God's promises actually are. Amen? That's just a side. But the stage, the stage is now set for us to go into Isaiah 28 and 29. So let's read Isaiah's words to Judah, but also his words to us because they're very applicable. Isaiah 28 verse 1. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord who has one who is mighty and strong like a strong of hail, destroying tempests like a storm of mighty overflowing waters, he casts down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it's in its hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strengthen to those who turn back the battle 
at the gate. Now, before we get into this, can you guys turn the air conditioners off, please? Just crank them up so they don't turn on again. Thank you. Isaiah 28, 1 through 6, what is he talking about? Well, first, he's using poetic language to drive home a very important point about what is taking place in the region. When he says, behold, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim in verse 1, what he's talking about is the northern kingdom of Israel. I imagine Isaiah standing in Judah, looking north up towards the hill country where Israel would have stood, and starts to imagine a parable forming in his mind that he's in a moment going to apply to Judah, which is the southern kingdom where he lives and where he's prophesying. But in the northern kingdom, he's looking forward to a kingdom that has just been completely decimated by Assyria. They are gone. But he's reminiscing parable style in what used to be on that hill where Samaria stood. So in the north, you've got Israel, the northern kingdom where it used to be. It was also referred to as Ephraim because that was the biggest tribe out of the 10 in the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom needed a capital city and the capital city was Samaria. And Samaria was built in such a way that the outside walls crested. And from a distance, when you looked at the city up on a hill, it looked like a crown sitting on the top of the hill. And so from a distance, people could see for miles and miles and miles, man, that's Samaria. Look, it's like a crown sitting on top of that mountain. And Isaiah is borrowing that imagery. He's looking at the city that used to be there and looked like a crown, and now it's sitting in ruins, and he's reminiscing about what it used to stand for. That city that looked like a crown, it had a vibe to it. And that vibe was drunkenness. That vibe was pride. That vibe was power and riches and wealth. And Isaiah is standing up there looking at this crown thinking, man, look at how fall the mighty have fallen. Look how far the mighty have fallen. And he goes on using more imagery as he gets down into verse 3 and 4. And he says, the fading flower of that power and that drunkenness of that crown, it's kind of like a ripe fig when somebody is hungry and they're walking through the field and the harvest is just starting and a fig just starts to sprout and it's not ready yet, it's not ready to be picked, it's not seasoned yet, but the, the person is so hungry, they'll go ahead and pick it before it's ready anyway because there's so much, there's so much promise in it. It just looks like it's going to be a good fig even though it's not ripe. I'm going to eat it now. This is what the prophet is saying happened to the northern kingdom. They were so prideful and so drunk on themselves and this world and cared so little for the Lord that they became nothing more than ripe pickings for this world. And the principle he's trying to get across is that in the people of God, they got to a place where they began to crown themselves with this world. And the only thing they became good for was consumption by the world. He's warning that the people of God can get to a posture where they are so self-consumed with themselves that the Lord can't use them anymore. He doesn't want to use them anymore. And the only thing they're good, the only thing, they're, the only thing they could possibly be used for is for the world to consume them. 
because they've already been giving themselves to the world so much. They don't look anything like the Lord anymore. They look more like the world than His kingdom. And so he says, the only thing you're good for is for the world to consume you. But in verse 5, God is offering something different to His people. He's offering them a different crown. Rather than the crown we place on our heads, the crown we place that Israel placed on the top of a hill that symbolized all their pride and drunkenness, the Lord is offering a different crown. He's offering Himself as a crown. And that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory. God's desire is not that we build these monuments to Him and crown ourselves with those achievements. His desire is that we crown ourselves with Him. We don't crown ourselves with our accomplishments and our trophies on the wall. We don't crown ourselves with the buildings that we build in His name or the songs that we write or the, just the way we stick it to people online who think differently about us. That's not the crown we wear. The crown we wear is Him. He is what is meant to be treasured above all other things. Not the feeling we get when we put people in their place or when we know that we're right and they're wrong. That's not the crown we wear. Well, it's not the crown we're meant to wear, but it is the crown that we often wear. We stand back and we say, look at what we have done. Look what the Lord has done. He didn't do that. We did it and we put his name on it. But the Lord is offering something different. Let's go to verse 7 in Isaiah 28. It says, these also. So he's, he's still talking about the same principles. But he's going to switch just a little bit. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. So this is the transition here. This is the switch. He's been looking up at the, the proud crown of Ephraim, that city filled with drunkenness, and then he shifts his eyes back down to Judah where he lives, and he says, these also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet, they reel with strong drink. They're swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision, but then stumble in giving judgment. For the tables that they set, they're filled with filthy vomit, with no space left. And there's a quotation here in verse 9. So he's starting to quote what he hears these drunk prophets and priests saying about the way that he teaches. To whom will he teach knowledge? To whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk and those who are taken from the breast? Babies? For it's precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. The end of the quote there at 10. He stops quoting the people who are against him in Judah, and he says, for by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, this is rest. Give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they will not hear it. And so the word of the Lord will be to them a precept upon precept 
precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go. What does the word do to them? They fall backward. They're broken. They're snared. And they're taken. So what's happening here? Well, to completely understand this, you have to understand a little bit of Hebrew because that verse 10, the precept upon precept, line upon line, that's repeated in 13. The translation here is about as best as we can get, but I think it, it robs, the, the translation robs itself of the meaning. I'll get there in a second. Because what's happening is, as I said, Isaiah is shifting his focus from Israel down to Judah, and he's looking at his contemporaries and he's saying, you know, I look around at the, the religious leaders that are around me. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at pastors and I'm watching people on YouTube and I just see a whole lot of the stuff that made Samaria fall. Uh, you know, I'm, I follow this Instagram account uh, called Preacher Sneakers uh, of pastors who are spending $8,000 on a pair of shoes and and, I, and, I, and I'm, you know, when I watch the message, it all, all of it just kind of seems like it's seasoned with make sure you send in your support. And I just can't shake this feeling that the climate of the people who have the megaphone all have the same agenda, and that is to get a bigger house and get a bigger car and get a faster plane. And I just can't shake this feeling that like we've lost what this whole thing is supposed to be about. That we season the meal with, with Jesus rather than Jesus being the meal. And Isaiah is looking at the people of God saying, I, I just can't shake this feeling that I watched one kingdom fall and now I'm starting to see the same thing among my people that I saw in the kingdom that's no longer here and I've been telling my people about it and nobody's listening to me. And the problem is that the problem is not just the people, the problem is the people leading the people. The problem is the religious leaders. The problem is the priests and the prophets of Judah, the ones who are supposed to be stewarding and sharing God's word that convicts the hearts and changes the minds of the people. Nobody knows it. No one teaches it. The people are, the leaders, the religious leaders are drunk. They have no vision. They're gathering people in for a spiritual meal, but all they're serving is vomit because that's all they have inside because they're not reading the Word on their own. They're not studying the Word. They're not being convicted by the Word. They're not telling themselves no and walking in repentance. All they're doing is feasting themselves on this world, a constant diet of Halloween candy, and then when they gather the people on Sunday morning, or, or, or they don't even have a building, they just have an online ministry, the stuff that they spew out is just more vomit. And these people, they don't just spew vomit, they also mock Isaiah's message for being too childish. And this is where we get into what I was mentioning before. Verse nine, they, they're over here with these massive ministries. This is important and this is important. Don't forget to send in your offering. This is important and this is important. Have you thought about this? And none of it has anything to do with a call to repentance or walking a narrow path. All of it sounds a lot like a book that you read last week by a non-believer who was giving you some help, some self-help garbage. 
or these quasi-Christians who, 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 who say, yeah, I love Jesus, but what they're really interested in is boosting their podcast numbers because revenue drives their happiness. And then when the prophet stands up and says the true word of God, they're standing back saying, don't listen to that. That's childish. Who, who are you going to teach those simple principles? Because the word that comes out from Isaiah is like, trust God. What are we as a people supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be trusting God. <laughs> well, that seems pretty childish, doesn't it? There's got to be more to it than that, right, people? There's, I mean, trust God? There's more to it than that. Is there? And so they're standing over here saying, who's going to listen to this guy? Who's going to listen to Isaiah and his childish message? And they, so they start repeating his message from their perspective. And his message, it sounds like gibberish. This is uh, verse 9 in Hebrew. Uh, verse 9 in English. Uh, verse 10 in English says, uh, for precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. That's the English translation. The Hebrew translation is this. Savla sav, savla sav, kavla kav, kavla kav. It's baby talk. It's gibberish. And the contemporaries of Isaiah are looking at him saying, guys, don't listen to this guy. He's saying, trust God. We don't need to trust God. We need to go find a bigger nation with a larger army to take on Assyria because they're coming for us. We need to form alliances here so that we're safe. Don't listen to this guy, trust God. This is childish. This doesn't play itself out in any tangible way that we can use and, and apply to our lives. Trust God, what a childish message. But the childish message is the thing that God consistently uses all through Scripture because it does one thing over and over and over again, and that is offend the prideful mind. And if you haven't caught on yet, that's what God is in the business of. How is it that the salvation of the entire world took place through the death of God's Son? That's not how anyone in here would have, would have planned it and strategized it. How is it that your sanctification, your transformation, your building up in faith is tethered to tribulation and trials and suffering in this world? How is it that Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross? If you want to follow me, you've got to share in the sufferings. I don't know if I'm here for that. Then you say something about like an abundant life and like lots of fruit, and wasn't there like a big table with a big meal? Yeah, but that all comes later. That's after the walking through and the suffering and the tribulations. Why though? Why do we have to go through that stuff? That's offensive to me. It's not, I don't really, I mean, I don't need to change that much. It's an indication of how disconnected you actually are from your condition and where he wants you to be. It's an indication that you don't understand that there's a grand canyon between where you're standing and where he's calling his people to. And that's why he gives us this offensive message. And that's why Isaiah says, the only message you're ever going to get is sav la sav, sav la sav, kav la kav, kav la kav. 
because the simplicity of this message is designed to do one thing. Melt your heart or harden your heart. Yes, that's two things. Sorry. When the word of the Lord comes forth, you have to make a decision. Is it offensive and you bow up to it and you say, I don't want any part of that? Or when it comes across, as simple as it is, trust God, you feel pierced in your very soul. And like Justin, who was leading worship today, the moment he starts reading the scripture about a woman at the well, he's broken. He can't even get through it without tears streaming out of his face because he has been profoundly confronted with something that's, that I don't know that I've even seen yet. And that's the beauty of his people. Because we're, as we're following him, it's almost like these little blinders are being lifted off of our eyes. And just, just when we thought we could see clear, he does another marvelous work. And it's like, oh, man, I didn't know it was like this. And you live like that for 10 years, and all of a sudden something else transpires. And you're like, oh, I didn't know it was like this. And that's our entire life. It's just a series of, whoa, I didn't know it was like this. And if that's not a good description of your Christian walk, I've got news for you. You're doing it wrong. If you are not being confronted line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, and that little bit, not these monumental moments that are transforming the entire world, but no, these little moments in your car with your kid in the back where he says one thing and you're just like, whoa, I didn't know it was like that. Or the moment you hold your child for the first time in their hospital and you're like, I didn't know it was like this. You're sitting around with, a, with your family at church and you're looking around and you're like, man, oh, we're worshiping the Lord. I'm so, I didn't know it was like this. If that's not the routine of you beholding the Lord, there is something much better than whatever it is that you've been experiencing. And this is what Isaiah is saying. This message is going to continue. This is what the Lord is going to do. He's going to do it through a strange people, their lips. They're going to speak a language you don't understand. And it's going to be the Lord in the middle of it. And if you can't see it, it's going to take your hard heart and make it harder. But if you can, by the grace of God, hear the message and be broken by it, And this thing that seems childish is going to be so profound it flips your world upside down and nothing will ever be the same. Go to verse 14. Isaiah is now connecting the drunk religious leaders with their alliance to Egypt. Verse 14, Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. Behold, excuse me, because you have said we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through it, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge and falsehood. We have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Does that sound familiar? Have we heard that anywhere before? Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line and hail 
will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. And then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. See, he's preaching the gospel right now. And when the overwhelming scourge passes through you, you you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you from morning by morning. It will pass through and day by night. And it will be a sheer terror to understand the message. And then there's a, there's a, a little idiom in here. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself out on. Hey, I get that. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I, I know exactly what he's talking about. And the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up on Mount Perazim as in the valley of Gibeon. He will be roused to do his deed. Strange is his deed. And to work his work. Alien is his work. It is strange to see a king who washes his servants' feet. This is peculiar. Now, therefore, do not scoff. Let your bonds be made strong, for I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. So we've heard that the Lord is going to do a thing in the land, and it's not going to be pleasant, but give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. I'm going to give you a parable. Does he, the farmer, so I'm going to give a parable, this, this farmer, imagine a farmer, does he plow for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill and sow cumin and put in wheat and rose and barley in its proper place and emir as the border? For he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. How did the farmer learn to turn up the ground and then plant and not plant first? Well, he learned it from the Lord because this is what God does. And here's another, dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is it a cart wheel rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. But does one crush grain forever? Excuse me, does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts because he is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. So Isaiah is connecting in verses 7 through 13 the drunk religious leaders in Egypt and how corrupt their spiritual leadership is And now he's moved into this section where he starts talking about the idea that God is offering salvation in the middle of this. This is a a bad situation, but the Lord has a plan. The idea that the religious leaders were the only hope for the people, that's not the case. The Lord has a plan, and this plan involves a cornerstone. It involves my son, Jesus, is what the Lord says. He has a plan to come in and annul this, con- this, this you, you've made, you've made a, a covenant with Egypt in order to save yourself, and that is really just an illustration of how the people of God love going back to the world and making a covenant where they were once slaves in order to borrow the resources of the world to accomplish God's plans, but we've already learned that you can't accomplish God's plans using the world's ways. You can only accomplish God's plan using God's ways. And so he starts walking the people through this illustration. Hey, listen, the people 
that are religious leaders that are leading you astray, God has a plan for that. There's going to be a time where a religious leader will come who won't be like these other leaders. A religious leader is going to come and it's going to be very peculiar, but he's going to be like a, kind of like a cornerstone when you're building a building. When this is set in, every other wall will be built off of this cornerstone. And it's going to be like a plumb line. It's going to be straight, baby. It's not going to be like these other religious leaders who are in it for their own agenda. No, he's going to be in it for something deeper. He's going to be in it for annulling this conflict of death, this covenant that you've established. He's going to come in and he's going to erase it. And you're not going to, what he's going to do inside of you when he shows up, I want you to understand because it's going to be peculiar. He's going to constantly have you in turmoil. So he's going to come and he's going to offer salvation. But after that, things are not necessarily going to get better. They're just going to get different. When this covenant is annulled in verse 18, this overwhelming scourge is going to continue to pass through your land. And in verse 19, it's going to pass often. Day by day, it's going to take you over. But it's not going to define you and it's not going to crush you. It's meant for one purpose and one purpose only. To perfect and remove the remnants of Egypt that still live inside of you. Because you can take the boy out of Egypt, but you can't take the Egypt out of the boy unless Jesus is at work in the boy. That stuff has got to get out because it comes out in speech. It comes out in the way we, we, we handle our finances and the way we manage our calendar and how we treat our family and our children and, and our, our parents. It comes out in everything, how we, how we view church. And so Jesus, in his mercy, when he comes as a cornerstone to annul that covenant of death, he doesn't stop there. He continues to allow, to allow tribulations and trials to blow through our land, to turn up the soil in the same way that a farmer turns up the soil to get it ready to plant. Because the end goal is fruit in your life. What he wants most from you is for you to grow in love and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, and self-control. But you can't walk in self-control when your heart looks like the hard soil of the ground that will not accept a seed. So he's got to turn up that soil with some tribulation. But good news, it's not going to last forever. Because just like a farmer doesn't beat dill or run over wheat with a cart in order to break, he doesn't thresh the wheat forever. Eventually, he's going to take it and use it for his purposes and bring it into market. There is coming a time where that process will end, but trials and suffering are a part of following Jesus. Because this is the peculiar way that he works. And farmers learned it from him. So we know that it's not just for Israel, this is for all people that call themselves God's people for all time because this is how God works. So if you're in that middle situation right now where you feel like, golly, it feels like I'm being threshed. It feels like the Lord has just turned the tractor and run over my ground one more time with the tillers. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus for a tender heart. Praise Jesus for a heart that looks like turned up soil that is ready to receive the seeds of his word and not the heart of the man who sits here and says, when are we going to be done with this? Kavla kav, sala sal. Let's go to 29. Ah, 
Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Add year to year, let the feasts run their round, yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she, sh- and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around, and I will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you, and you will be brought low from the earth. You shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall be a whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust also and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with the whirlwind and tempest and the flame of devouring fire and the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her shall be like a dream, a vision of the night, as when a hungry man dreams and behold, he is eating and wakes up with his hunger not satisfied. I can also identify with that. That is most of my life. I'm always hungry. Or as when a thirsty man dreams and behold, he is drinking and awakes faint. With his thirst not quenched, so shall the multitude of the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Ah, so now we know who Ariel is. It is Jerusalem. It is God's people. See, Ariel is a Hebrew word that means altar hearth. At the altar in the temple, there was a a place right in front of the altar that was paved with stone. And that stone was the place where the sacrifice was made. And so what God is saying is he's looking down on his people and he's saying, oh, Ariel, Ariel, my people, Jerusalem, you were supposed to be the place of sacrifice. You were supposed to steward the fire cleansing, the cleansing fire of God. You were, you were supposed to be the people who, who, who managed when the, the redemption of the world, the, the nations were meant to come to you and say, teach us the ways of the Lord. But what you turned it into was just a festival that you celebrated year by year. You weren't a true Ariel. But I'm going to distress you. I'm going to besiege you so that you will be a true Ariel. And the affliction is going to come in the form of nations conquering you. Assyria will have some success but I'm going to stop them with my hand and I'm going to tell them you can't come this, you can't come any closer. They're going to stop at the gates of Jerusalem. And they're going to have an appetite for wanting to continue to consume you, but I'm, I'm pointing my finger and saying you can't come any farther than this hill. And their appetite is going to be like the appetite of a man who goes to sleep and dreams about eating and wakes up and he's still hungry. That's what a series is going to be like. Why am I doing this? Why am I allowing you to live in this tension where the enemy is coming to the door is because you won't trust me. 
And so when you're standing on the wall watching the army come and then I say right there, stop right there, and you watch them stop and it doesn't matter what they do, they cannot come any closer, you're gonna lift your hands and praise and you're gonna worship your king because he has, by the fire of his presence, said this is how far you go, I'm a hedge around my people and now is the point at which I intervene and they're going to say praise God and it's at that moment that they become a true Ariel. There's a thing that God wanted them to be. There was a thing that they were posing, and there was a thing that they will become. Isaiah sees what he's, God is doing here. But as he looks at Judah, he still sees blind, lazy drunks, and then his anger comes out in the next few verses. Go to 29, verse 9. Isaiah sees what God is doing, but he's looking around and nobody is seeing it because they're too busy throwing up at this party and being drunk. Verse 9, astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets. I'm looking at you, the prophets. He's covered your head, you seers. I'm looking at you. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book. So now we've got another parable. The vision of all this, of what God's doing and the fact that you refuse to pay attention to it. It's kind of like when men give it to one another. This book, sorry, let me back up. The vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. So we've got a book that's sealed, and when men give it to one another who can read, so intelligent people who, who can read, they're learned students, they say, read this. And he says, I can't, it's sealed. Okay, we'll break the seal. Mm. Verse 12, when when they give the book that's sealed to somebody who can't read, they say, ah, read this. And he says, well, I, I don't know how to read. Well, learn. Mm-hmm. And the Lord said, because the people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, they don't fear me. They're just honoring something that someone told them to do. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder and with wisdom and their wise men. They're going to perish and their discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. And you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and you say to one another, who sees us, who knows what we're doing? No one's going to find this out. Let's just keep on doing this. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? And shall the thing made say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? Is it not yet a very little while while Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? Isaiah is so frustrated with the people He lashes out and just says, you know what? The Lord's doing something. You don't want to see it, so go ahead and just keep on being blind. And he uses this parable to explain their situation. You've got somebody who is handing a book to them. Isaiah is giving them the word of the Lord. Here's where it starts getting really applicable to us. He's handing them the word of the Lord, and he's saying, it's it's sealed, but it's sealed so that you'll break the seal and demonstrate your desire to want to learn. 
He said, oh, but it's sealed. I, I, I can't get into it. I'm too lazy to break the seal. Or, or like a sealed book that's handed to somebody who, who doesn't know how to learn. Well, read this. I don't know how to read. Well, learn. They're too, un, they're too uninterested to learn. And this is where we see the two main conditions of the people of God. It is not just in the church today. It has been existing for, for 2,700 years. This is going on in Israel at the time of Isaiah. We're people who draw near to the Lord with our lips. We say the right things, but our heart is far from Him. We are religious on the outside, but dead on the inside. Why? Because we're either too lazy or too uninterested to learn what He has said about Himself. We would rather someone tell us what he said about himself. And because of this condition, the Lord says, I'm going to turn everything upside down. I'm going to confound your wisdom by inviting a childlike faith. I'm going to invite you to forsake the power that you've garnered here on earth, your status and your identity. I'm going to ask you to trade it in to be counted among the weak. Those of you who want to hide your dark deeds, I'm going to expose them. In short, I'm going to regularly besiege my people and camp around them and lay waste to the land of their hearts. This is what the Lord God Almighty does. You cannot run from Him. You cannot hide from Him. You cannot pretend that He does not exist. He is coming for you whether you like it or not. And when he arrives, do not be found saying, I'm too busy or I'm too lazy to respond to the fire that consumes everything in his path. Let's finish verse 18. It says, in that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. You see what he's doing? His eyes, Isaiah is now lifted up and he's, he's like, the condition of the people. So we're just going to let that rest because I'm looking forward to a day when the people will not say, I'm too lazy or uninterested. A coming, there is a day coming where the deaf shall hear and the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. Man, that sounds a lot like Matthew 5. The poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing and the scoffer cease and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off and who by a word make a man out to be an offender and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate with an empty plea, turn aside him who is in the right. Therefore, says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed. No more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands, when he sees what I'm going to do in his midst, they will sanctify my name. And they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding and those who murmur will accept instruction. Isaiah is looking beyond the time of his people Blind eyes will open and deaf ears will hear. And those who have gone astray will start to hear. And those who complained and murmured and spoke against God will start insecting their instruction. What he's talking about is he's looking to the cross 
and the resurrection and the work of God in his church. The prophet is looking 3,000 years in the future at the church of God across the world that a message that was taught to 12 guys is what assembled a congregation on this morning and in and, and, and every church across the country and across the world. Like this message, the invitation of the offensive things to offend your heart, to turn your eyes to Jesus, this is what will be preached across the entire world. Now this brings us to a difficult close. Because what we're looking at here is Isaiah telling us that what God promises his people is mystery. And most of us are not okay with that. And I got bad news for you. You're going to have to get okay with it. You are not promised the answers to your questions. In his mercy, he gives them sometimes, but most of the time he does not. He confounds the wisdom of this world to drive home a point and offend the heart. And he does things in your life that he doesn't explain because he wants you to trust him and not this world. I ran across a quote from C.S. Lewis this week. He wrote a book called The Abolition of Man and he was describing in this book the importance of being able to see through some things but not see through everything. And he He said, it's important for mankind to be able to see through a window. But what would be the value if mankind could see through a garden? You want to see through the window so that you can see the garden and behold its beauty. But everything in this life, if you reduce everything in this life down to something that you can explain and understand and see through, then you don't actually see anything. And this is what Isaiah is inviting us into. He's inviting inviting us into a world of mystery where you are told you don't get to know all the answers. Trust me. There are some things you will see through, but other things, it's like looking in a mirror dimly. You won't understand until much later. And if you can be okay with that, there is a joy in that. But for those of us who are not satisfied until we know everything, Understand that if you chase that life down far enough, you will see through everything and you won't see anything. So for us that struggle with that, that want to know how the watch is made, I want, and I'm there, I'm with you. I want to know how it works, but I have to be careful because if I stand before the Lord with my finger saying, tell me how that works. Why is this in my life? Why is this person here? Why do I have to do this thing I don't like? And eventually I will rob myself of the awe and the mystery that I am promised I will enjoy in my Savior. And I'll constantly convince myself that I'm on his level and that he owes me an explanation. He is far greater than us. We are the clay. He is the master who is forming us. Let's all sit in our rightful place and enjoy what he's offering in the mystery of our God through salvation. Amen? Let's pray. 
Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.